listeners, before we get started, a quick announcement. The National Science Foundation, together with the Arizona State University, offering a three-week intensive methods training for PhD students. The NSF Cultural Anthropology Methods Program will be held virtually from June 26 to July 7th and will offer the opportunity to advance your knowledge of cultural anthropology methods and connect with people in the field. Apply by March 15th at methodsforall.org. That's M-E-T-H-O-D-S for all.org. The link will be included in the bio of this episode. Now, on with the show. Hello, listeners. Chris here. As you may have noted by the bonus episodes in your feed, Kara and I have been hibernating from the podcast a bit as all sensible mammals are wont to do at this time of year. You can probably hear the snoring behind me, right? But don't worry. We have some great new interviews coming down the pipe very soon with more uh, book bonus excerpts from our amazingly productive colleagues. In the meantime, I have a new podcast I've been putting together as a research project for my studies of tattooing called The Inking of Immunity Podcast with Mike Smetana, a doctoral student working with me at the University of Alabama, and Becky Owens, an evolutionary psychologist at the University of Sunderland in the UK as my co-hosts. We are tattoo researchers talking to tattoo researchers. We thought Sausage of Science listeners might enjoy this podcast too, so following is our third Inking of Immunity episode in which we interview interdisciplinary scholar Gemma Angel, about her studies of tattooed human skin collections found in museum archives like the Welcome Collection at the Science Museum of London. If you like these episodes, please subscribe to Inking of Immunity on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are given away. Leave good reviews and like us on Facebook and Instagram at inking.of.immunity and on Twitter at inking underscore immunity. Sounds like I'm awake. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Lynn. Welcome to the Inking of Immunity podcast. I'm here with my co-hosts. Hey, guys. Hey, it's Rebecca Owens. Michael Smetana here. And we are talking to Dr. Gemma Angel. Do you go by Gemma or Dr. Angel? What would you prefer? Oh, Gemma's fine. So Gemma, she's an interdisciplinary scholar with research interests in many cool things. I've been advertising her as a specializing in medical humanities because of some of the articles we've read, but she works in museums. She, she specializes in anthropology, medical humanities, museums, human remains, and visual culture. And she's currently the program director of a campus-based museum studies MA, MSc program for the School of Museum Studies at the University of Help Me Out, UK. Okay, folks, like <laughs> I was not gonna even be close. And and some of the she's got a, a bunch of great book chapters and articles out, but the research in all of those that we've read for today regard medical and, and criminological discourses around European tattooing and the role that collections of preserved tattooed skins have played in those discourses. So welcome to the podcast, Gemma. How are you? Thank you. 
I'm great, thanks. I'm happy to be here. How's the COVID world going on your side of the pond these uh, days? It's a shit not show good. here. Not good, no. It's, um, infections are increasing and I think everybody's in tier four now. I don't know if your listeners will yeah. know what that means, but yeah, possibly heading for another national lockdown. Who yeah, knows? We've, we've just been getting some big announcements about it right now, I think. <laughs> That's a cheery way to start. So let's shift then to talking about dead people's skin being collected because sure. that's far more One of uplifting. My topics. So, so Gemma, why don't you just start by telling us about your background, scholarly expertise, and how in the hell did you come to be able to access these collections of tattooed skin? And then we'll get to like why even they exist. Sure. Okay. So, um, it wasn't the straightest of career paths, and it certainly wasn't planned. There was an awful lot of serendipity along the way for me. I started out as a, a visual artist back in 2000 at art school and I trained as a tattooist at the same time oh, and cool. that's when my interest in tattooing and body art really began and I remember I, I did my uh, my dissertation my undergraduate dissertation on why wasn't there any consideration of tattooing within the sort of art historical canon so that's that's where my head was at the time and funnily enough one of my colleagues he's an art historian Matt Lodder Dr Matt Lodder you might have heard of him he kind of that that's his whole preserve of, of research now actually so I'm really glad that somebody is doing that work because when I was at university doing my undergrad there really wasn't a lot out there looking at the history of tattooing from that kind of visual culture perspective and art historical perspectives but then I, I carried on tattooing for a while and I was a school teacher for a while so I kind of went in a different direction and then I came back to academia to do a master's in visual anthropology and that really kind of gelled more with my way of thinking so I, I did a lot of work on tactile communication and I was, I was still very much interested in the significance of skin as a kind of communicative medium I suppose you would say except this was in a very different context I was at the time when I was doing my master's because I was just coming out of teaching I was looking at ways of, of teaching and communicating within special needs schools so nothing to do with tattooing but the my sort of interest in ethnographic research and hands-on practice was still very much there and skin kind of developed a lot further and then it was really a lot of luck. So I finished my master's at the end of 2009 and the PhD that I did was actually advertised. So it was a program that was a kind of a collaborative setup between a museum institution, which was the Science Museum in London and University College um, London History of Art Department. Um, so there was a supervisor from each of those institutions and they kind of got together to um, say, look, we have this collection of preserved tattoos, which have come from the Welcome Collection historically and now kind of kept in perpetuity um, by the Science Museum, they didn't really know anything about them. So it was an opportunity for them to get a research student in to do a project to figure out more about this collection, its history. And that was that was really great for me because I wouldn't have known that they existed. And I'm not sure anybody except the people in the museums really knew that they existed at this point. Um, my supervisor at UCL was a specialist in, she was very much an art historian, which I would say I'm not at this point. <laughs> but she was very much interested in medical imagery and um, representation so she was a, a very good supervisor to kind of frame the project at the beginning 
But I think when I came in and I saw them for the first time, I realised that I would have to start with the objects themselves. And that was just intuitively how I began to work with them. And it led me in some really unexpected directions. So I do, at this point, I do say that I am an interdisciplinary scholar. So I've, I've trained in historical methods for doing research and I've trained in ethnographic methods. So I kind of have one foot in the history camp and one in the anthropology camp, broadly speaking. But when you work, when you have an object-led approach, you really don't know where you're going to end up and what you're going to end up looking at. So this research has taken me to criminology archives, to medical history, to military history, which was really kind of out of my experience. I had to learn French in order to access all these archives. So it was a huge learning curve. But yeah, it's com it completely changed my life. And it was a very chance thing that I applied for this PhD when it was advertised. And I, th I think they asked for somebody who had expertise in history, visual culture and tattooing and interest in skin so I mean that's a pretty <laughs> unique kind of constellation of interests and yeah. I just thought that this is for me and luckily I, I was the, I was the lucky student who got to do the project so that's how that all came to be. I will say that this is only the second interview we've done for this podcast but I do another science podcast I've done over a hundred interviews about half of the people say I have a non-traditional path, but yours is actually the first one I would actually agree with. Everyone has a non-traditional path in academia. I have interviewed zero other people who were tattoo artists first and whose research object was predestined and made available and such a unique thing. So that's fucking cool as shit. I mean, that, that advertisement for your PhD just sounds like it was actually made for you. It sounds absolutely perfect. <laughs> it's how it felt the time it was very strange and I think actually the fact that I had experience as a tattoo practitioner made a difference as well because I as soon as I looked closely at the tattoos I could see how they would been made and I'm not sure that somebody who didn't have that insight wouldn't necessarily know what they were looking at materially so that was very that was actually very helpful to me. That's really interesting as well. Uh. Yeah I, I remember being struck when I was reading I think it's the article in Ancient Ink where you're actually critiquing some of the tattoo artists I was like wow what granularity and I started doing stick and poke on myself about halfway through to sort of start to get the same insights and started you know it was only by as I tell my kids you learn more by making mistakes so I fucked up a bunch of tattoos on my legs to learn how to recognize bad tattoos yeah, well, or... that's how it works as a tattooist as well. The very first tattoo that I ever did, I did on myself, on my ankle. And the line work was fine. That was something that I was always quite natural at, but I was found the shading really difficult. And so then at a later date, I decided I'd go over it and then I fucked it up even more. So it, that's just, that's just part of the course um, as a tattooist. I would much rather have fucked up uh, my first tattoo on myself than on some poor and suspecting stranger. So tell us about this person, Henry Welcome. Like, uh, this is a crazy story to me, but maybe it's not so crazy that there are these European folks collecting all this tattooed stuff. Yeah, um, Henry Welcome, I think it was one of a kind, really. He's a very interesting figure. American, you might already be aware that he was born in America and moved to the UK. And he was sort of fascinated by anything related to the history of human health and medicine. And he had a very, very broad kind of view of what that included, which is why at the core of the Welcome Collection now, which is in the Science Museum, over 100,000 objects, there's everything from Roman votives to medical equipment and machinery like human lungs and prosthetics and obviously human remains from kind of all kinds 
different context. It's very, very eclectic. So, you know, things that relate to folk medicine, things that would fit into more ethnographic collection than a medical collection per se. He had this very, very broad view and he was probably what you would call today a hoarder with unlimited resources. So he had a whole, I want to say, battalion of purchasing agents who he would send out to different parts of the world with, you know, these people would report back to him, but there's, you know, some of them had quite a lot of freedom, really, to determine what might be of interest to the collection. And they would go out and they would buy everything from books and preserved tattoos and Napoleon's toothbrush, you name it, even whole shop fronts. So there's a whole apothecary shop front, which is um, part of the collection as well. So all of this stuff was kind of pouring from all over Europe and parts of North Africa as well into London and basically went straight into a warehouse in Wilsdon. And I think by the time he died in 1936, there was over a million objects in this collection and most of it had never been properly documented, never been properly accessioned. And of course, then there was the war. You might know that a lot of um, London London's, a lot of national collections were really damaged in bombing raids. So a lot of museums were kind of short of material. And there's a, a story, um, I think this is in Francis Larson's book, which is really great. If you're interested in knowing more about Henry Welcome and how the collection came to be, her book, Infinity of Things, is really, really great source on that. There's a story that curators came from different collections, so some from Liverpool, some from London, to this warehouse. And the trustees didn't know what to do with all of this material. They couldn't go through it themselves. So they just said, here, you have this corner, you have that corner, take it away. And you know, these people left with crate loads of stuff and didn't really know what they had until they got back to their own museums. So this is why you will find welcome material in literally every major collection in the UK now. In fact, we have a teaching collection at the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester, and all of that was donated from the Welcome Collection at some point. Some of it's really quite nice stuff for a teaching collection. There's bits and pieces in Oxford, all over the place. And yeah, so the Science Museum retained this sort of core of 100,000 objects, which is the main Welcome Collection now. And the tattoos are part of that collection. So there's 300 preserved tattoos within this collection. and like much of the welcome material there really isn't a lot known about it there was not a lot of archive or documentary material and um, the main source that I had to go on when I started was the journal notes of Captain Peter Johnson Saint who was one of the purchasing agents that welcome sent to France in particular so yeah I have this little little entry in his diary about how he went to meet this doctor called Lavalette. No more details given than that. The Rue Cold de Médecine in Paris. And he had this collection of 300 preserved tattoos, which he describes as coming from soldiers, sailors and criminals of all nationalities. But other than that, there's not much more to really go on. So I had a location, I had a potential collector's name, and I had these kind of milieu to kind of begin to look at demographically for the origins of the collection. So I had you know, prisons, the military and sailors. And so that's where I started. That is so cool. And I, I think your description of Henry Welcome is spot on. As a kind of hoarder that I would like to know, <laughs> I actually did my master's in um, at the University of Kent down in Canterbury. So I would hop on the fast train and go up to London and spend a lot of time in the Welcome collection. Did you go to Blythe House to the archives? I did not. Oh. No, no, I wish I would have. But I, I find it so interesting that your object of study is preserved skin. I mean, what a 
what a fascinating topic. And it's interesting to me with your work with special needs students. My mom's been a special education teacher for almost 30 years now. And when you talk about skin as, as not only our largest organ, but such an integral part of our sensory system and tattoos is kind of like occupying that interstitial space between the outside world and our internal world. I find that super interesting. And I'm working with Chris on uh, his Samoan studies in tattooing, and we're looking at tattooing as embodiment and how that may be embodied in the immune and endocrine systems. So I think it's interesting how you describe tattoos, not merely as images, but as an embodied living art form. Yeah, that, that to me is, it might sound strange coming from somebody who's built a career on looking at preserved tattoos but I think it's a strange thing to do to preserve tattoos post-mortem and I know it was a very different context in the 19th century to the context today where you know there are people who are providing these kind of post-mortem preservation services or there's a you know people interested in preserving them as art but to me the art doesn't work if it's not on a living body that's the thing that makes tattooing distinctive and maybe this is my sensibility as a, as an artist as a tattooist but for me the skin is a living canvas essentially and the tattooists themselves they're not the creator of this artwork the body is as much a creator of the artifact the tattoo itself as well and that sort of interaction that encounter if you like is one of the things that makes it so interesting to me it's really interesting I just I kind of want to just pick up on something and sorry this is a little bit off topic but it was kind of picking up just from what Mike mentioned there and what you mentioned earlier about using the skin as you know as as a method of communication and obviously it's our largest organ and 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 obviously tattoos are real painful and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about the idea about some people needing to feel that feeling more than other people do so maybe some neurodiverse people or people who have suffered some kind of trauma. That's something that I've been looking into lately with one of my students where she's been looking at trauma. And so there's, there's somebody who I work with who is looking into BDSM, which obviously is different, but the idea that someone who needs a stronger touch to be able to feel what neurotypical people would feel regularly. Does that make sense? I'm just kind of... It's, that's really interesting. And I haven't, um, obviously, I, I, can't, I can't speak to that personally. I can't speak for people who may be neurodivergent and have the, those kinds of feelings and orientations. But it, it's certainly interesting. I'd like to know more. I would say that there is something, from my own experience of being tattooed, that there is a kind of a sense of um, heightened awareness when you're undergoing tattooing. Obviously, you'll know, as scientists, you'll know more about this than I do, but your, your kind of body goes into a kind of a very mild, almost shock reaction initially. So, you know, especially if it's the first time you've tattooed somebody, um, quite often they'll shake. And that usually passes quite quickly. But then the kind of state that you or I have been in after that is sort of like a much more high, heightened state of sensation. So you're kind of trying to control how you react to the pain, but your body is also beginning to acclimatize to it. And it makes you reflect on what you're doing and why you're doing it. At least it did for me. I remember the first time I had a tattoo, I was um, 16, which is technically not legal. <laughs> but so I won't say where I had it done, but it was a long time ago in the 90s. And it was only a small black symbol so it was it was over in about 10 minutes 
But I remember tensing up and, you know, that sort of initial shock and feeling sort of shaky. And then because it was over so quickly, I hadn't really acclimatized until I got out. And I was still shaking and I was still feeling the adrenaline. But then I sort of felt this high that I'd, I'd reshaped myself in some way. I'd intervened in my own body to kind of make a statement, which incidentally, absolutely of its time, it was a kanji character that says strong. And, you know, I, there's all sorts of personal reasons why I chose to have that tattoo at the time. But the fact that I got through it and sort of left with this new mark on my skin that I'd made myself made me feel like, yeah, I am stronger. But the second time I had a tattoo, it was a lo- much longer one. It was two hours. And so I had a lot longer to sit and think about it and get used to the sensation and talk to the tattooist. And actually, that was the conversation that made me realize I wanted to be a tattooist. I wanted to learn how to do it myself. And he was really instrumental in helping me get started, actually. So again, I've gone on a tangent. If I can interject, I want to just bring us back to these collections that you looked at um, Mm. are not public. And, and it sounds crazy that people would be collecting tattoos, but we got to remember this is the colonial era when they were collecting indigenous people and yeah. housing them in museums and trotting people around the world. And people were getting tattooed to be circus sideshow freaks. So can you tell us more about some of the criminological efforts people were involved in and why they were collecting these tattoos? And I think, you know, maybe this is probably also why in our, our reevaluation of our colonial past, why they're not on exhibit, uh, which I think connects back to what you're saying about tattoo being a living art, not not an art when they're dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the tattoos that were collected in the 19th century and sort of into the 20th a little bit as well, they're not artistic collections. They are They were collected for this symbology, if you like. So a lot of the tattoos in the Welcome Collection, I mean, there is, there's a reason why, you know, only so many of them have ever been on display in various exhibitions. So the images of the preserved tattoos on the chest of the man that identified as Framan that I've shown to you, they are the most artistically accomplished in the collection and they are actually quite unusual. So most of them are very kind of rough and amateur and not in great condition. So it's obvious that they weren't collected for aesthetic reasons when you look at the collection as a whole. And then when I went to France and started to kind of look into archives there, really wasn't sure where to start. So I thought, okay, I'll see if I can find iconographic similarities between collections of drawings of tattoos from the 19th century and photographs. And this particular criminologist, Alexandre Lacassonia, he collected a huge number of tracings directly from the skin of various men who were mainly soldiers and some prisoners in military prisons to kind of build up this collection of different tattoo images that were kind of categorized in these kind of broad categories. And the thinking behind that was that this could somehow tell you something about the psychology and the morality of the tattooee. So I think it's always been practiced in Europe tattooing is always there's plenty of historical evidence now to kind of show that actually it was a pretty much continuous practice but it wasn't because it was mainly practiced by you know ordinary working class lower class people it's not something that was documented until people like medical professionals and the military and criminologists came along and took an interest and I think the reason that they took an interest was because to them looking at other cultures 
So anthropology is exposing Europe to these different body art practices of other cultures, which are inherently assumed at this point to be primitive. They look to their own populations and see, oh, well, you know, all of these men in particular, you know, if you're a woman having a tattoo, then you must be a prostitute. And if you're a man having a tattoo, then, you know, there must be something primitive about these people. And in a European population, that equated to criminality or criminal tendency. So this, this was a shift that happened around 1880s. So before that, the main interest in the tattoo legally was whether or not they were indelible and you could reliably identify an individual based on their tattoos. So, you know, there were a number of cases where various medical doctors were looking at this then. But then the shift happened where they kind of started to look at the tattoo as a category of image that could be reinterpreted to learn something about criminal psychology, essentially. And it, it's funny because this attitude kind of, it does, it has hung over a little bit into the 20th century and even continues in some circles today but I think actually forensics has come around to the original starting point of thinking well you know tattoos might be useful to identify individuals but it doesn't reliably tell you anything about somebody's proclivities towards criminality or or any other kind of so-called deviant psychology. Remind me what your question was because I feel like I've gone off on one again. No that was good you nailed it I think Mike has a question. Oh yeah, I was I just wanted to pick up on that that idea of deviant, what we classify as deviant. And you point this out in your articles and this is something that we've come across Chris and Becky and I are doing a scoping review of kind of the psych- literature around the psychology of tattooing and time and time again we see it being associated with criminals and other and other negative behavior. Yeah, it amazes so, me that it's still it, a thing. It is. I think I I think I came across a study from really recent like 2013 14 maybe that was i think it was based in criminology i won't say what the study was exactly so as not to you know get on the wrong side of anybody but the premise was is there a correlation between tattooing and criminality and i was thinking why would you even ask this question at this point in time is any and they of course they found none you know so i guess finally we have a a research paper that tells us definitively that there isn't one but do we really need it (laughs) exactly and i think i mean whether it's if we're looking back to the colonial era era or even projecting that into today we look at things that we deem as other or different from us as deviant or grotesque but at the same time we as humans collectively seem to be kind of drawn to this we're attracted to deviancy or psychopathologies and I mean half of the shows I watch are about serial killers so yeah yeah it's it's intriguing it's a kind of how would I put it? I mean, I, as you might imagine, my research attracts a lot of that because it's got the dual aspect of tattoos and human remains. So you put the two of those together and, you know, I get asked some strange questions. <laughs> but yeah, I, I suppose my, from my perspective of somebody who has practiced tattooing and been tattooed, it's something that I very much wanted to kind of address that idea and counter that idea that there's something deviant in tattooing and it's interesting that it's this it's a persistent thread of interpretation and it's a persistent idea within 
various European cultures for a very long time. And yet at the same time, it's something that has been practiced for a very long time. So it's sort of got this liminal status of as being something that is familiar and ever present, but at the same time, something that is taboo and something that is strange. And the more you have, the more criminal you are, the stranger you are, or you're a freak, so much so that you can go and perform in a sideshow, you know? I like the notion of the, the liminality. And we, we hear that a lot with tattooing, right? And this comes from Victor Turner idea of something being betwixt and between on a threshold. And and with the work that you're doing specifically in the 19th century, if we think about when the tattoo gun, which later became the tattoo machine, as you point out in a footnote, to, to make it sound uh, more professional, and the tattooer becomes the tattooist and becomes the tattoo artist, we have this semiotic shift. But we also have this period where, and forgive me for not, and this is, I guess my question is, What's going on in Europe? Because Samuel O'Reilly invents the electric machine generally in the late 19th century, 1880s, I think, in New York. Does it make it over to Europe right away? Is it a professional type of vocation for some? Like, who's getting tattooed and who's doing the tattooing, I guess, is my yeah. small question with the big intro. Yeah, it's... Um... So this is an interesting difference between Britain and continental Europe as well, that these kind of kind of criminological perspectives that saw tattooing as something that was deviant didn't really take hold in Britain. And that's partly probably because there was already a very strong port-based tattooing tradition. And I mean, even Lakasanya points out that in his studies, that tattooing amongst soldiers he was studying wasn't really a way of life, not like it was amongst sailors. So for sailors, it was very much a longer step. It was almost a trope that, you know, the connection between sailors and tattoos. And that had been around for a very long time, you know, going back to the 18th century, actually. So I think Britain, it wasn't such a strange thing as, as it might have been viewed in parts of continental Europe and in America as well, I think. They were the places that professionalised first, so Britain and America. And there were early professionals beginning in the late 19th century in France and Germany. But it was still very much a kind of casual trade. So one of the things that I found out quite recently about my tattooed man in my article um, from Anne was that he also has this elaborate back piece. And I've made some very exciting connections between the, this image on his back and the kind of political context that he was surrounded in related to the to the army and, and broader kind of cultural politics. But it's, it turns out that this tattoo on his back it was copied from a popular image in uh, Le Journal Illustré by one of his fellow soldiers. And this particular soldier is also the person who tattooed the child on his chest, which, again, was another image that I managed to connect to popular advertisement from the broadsheets in the day. So there were people who were beginning to tattoo professionally. And I think in Framan's case, he's almost like a kind of walking advertisement for this particular tattooist's skills. And I think the, the choice of having these popular images that you know were recognized really widely tattooed on his body were possibly kind of in negotiation with the tattooist. I imagine it a little bit like today you see people in places like Leicester Square in London 
who are you know offering portraits to passers-by and they often have images of celebrities that they've drawn portraits of because they're faces that everybody recognizes and you can tell at a glance if that person has the artistic skill to be able to do a really great portrait i think in this case of Froman, that perhaps you know it was the same kind of thing you know people would recognize that image from the paper and this guy you know what a great tattooist he's able to transfer this amazing image onto somebody's skin and it was considered so amazing in fact that the very newspaper that ran the image in the first place then did a whole piece for a man showing off his back piece in a barracks hospital <laughs> wow <laughs> that that is that is so cool. So would you say that this kind of copying of popular images, would you say that this marks the transition between tattooer as an amateur and tattooist as a professional? Is that something that you've seen in your work? I think it's a possibility. Yeah, I think it's something as well. I mean, my colleague, art historian Matt Lodder, he, he will be able to comment on this much more because he has specifically focused on studying early professionals from this period. And, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in the collectors and the people being collected and why that was all happening in this context. But yeah, I think, I think there's a good case to be made for that. I mean, this person's skill is evident. It's all done freehand with, you know, there's no machine involved. So that's even more impressive. You know, the resemblance between the images that he's copied is really apparent. And I think it makes sense. This kind of tattooing represents the beginnings of professionalization in this context. Now he is an ordinary soldier, but he's an ordinary soldier who has this sort of particular talent and skill that he, you know, may well have then taken into a professional context later, but you know, it's not something that I know as of yet. I haven't haven't managed to figure out what his name is. So that work is beautiful. How do you know it wasn't a uh, machine done? Just by close analysis of the the tattoo marks themselves. So the lining really gives it away if you've used a machine. And bear in mind that at this point, the needle groupings that will be used with a machine will be quite limited. So you'd have maybe threes, fives and sevens at the most. And yeah, so you notice actually the handful of machine tattoos that are in the Welcome Collection, and there are only a handful, they've obviously been somebody who has maybe got a set of needles but only the one and they have attempted to shade with the same very fine needle bundle as they've used the lining and so it's very patchy but yeah it leaves a distinctly different sort of pattern in the skin grain than hand needles i mean if they were here in front of you i could point it out <laughs> all good becky do you want to wrap us up yeah i was just kind of wondering where your work's going on to next really so I am working on a book about the collection called Speaking Scars, which is one of Lacassania's famous phrases. It's how he described tattoos as, as speaking scars. And the key piece in that book at the moment that I'm working on is focusing on Fermin's back piece and what happened to that. So there's this really fantastic story about how when he was convalescing in a military hospital, the officers became interested in his, his body art and he was drawn and discussed and a, ve a very, very detailed description of his tattoos made it into a medical article, which is how I managed to identify him. He's not described in terms of his name, but in terms of his tattoos. So I was able to make the connection between what's described on the front of his body and then on his back. He was, amazingly, he was offered 400 francs for the tattoo on his back because it was this political subject matter. And 
Of course, you know, you can't sell your tattoo whilst you're still alive. And I don't know whether or not he agreed to that. But I know that he did intend to work as a tattooed man when he left the army. So I have a lot of biographical threads that I'm trying to track down and weave together at the moment to kind of finish this story, as it were. So that's going to be the book. And the next project that I'm working on is really kind of carrying on my work looking at forensic collections in particular. I'm interested in criminological and forensic museums and collections and that kind of there's a spectrum really from the forensic to the criminological and looking at those historically. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Gemma, this has been so cool. Mike, do you have a parting question or, or comment? I don't. I was going to say that I think that's a great point to cap this off. And maybe if you could tell everybody where they could find your work at and maybe any social media you post on, that would be great too. Yeah, so I, I have a research blog, which I started during my PhD, which is called lifeinsixmonths.com, which refers to, you know, how long your tattoo will last. It's easy to remember. <laughs> Um, I haven't updated that one in a little while, but you can also find me on Twitter um, at Dr. Gemma underscore Angel and also at Life on Six Months. Gemma, thank you so much. <laughs> I love your stories and I can't wait till your book comes out. We'll get you back on. Yeah. Thank you. It's, I mean, I could talk about this stuff forever, so... Awesome. And we are the Inking of Immunity podcast. You can find Inking of Immunity on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, in various permutations. You can find me, Chris Lynn, at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. I am on Twitter at Dr. Becky Owens. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Smetana, PhD. And apparently, if we're not on Twitter, I'll, I might be in a closet. Mike might be in a tent in his living room. So that's the world right now. 